0: chapter 1. I'm preaching through the book of the Gospel of John, and I'm going to read the first um, few verses. I'm not going to preach the actual verses so much, but I just figured if we're going to be teaching about John and going through the Gospel of John, we're going to start out with his first words that he wrote. And the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And so we're going to be talking about John. And you know, he's most often known as the Apostle of Love. Um, He's called the Beloved. Um, But I'm going to be looking at it from a different angle, and I believe you'll see it through the Scriptures, that John was the Apostle of Balance. Now, he didn't start out very well balanced. He was actually very imbalanced at first. But then through the transformation that comes through Jesus Christ, he ended up becoming a man um, of great balance um, and a Christian um, leader. The Apostle John is familiar to us because he wrote so much of the New Testament. You know, when you um, look at the New Testament, one um, he, he was the human author of the Gospel of John three epistles that bear his name, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, or you could say 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, is one of my favorite preachers used to call it. Um, And he wrote the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, sometimes it's often titled the Revelation of St. John, but it's actually the Revelation of Jesus Christ um, being revealed to John. And aside from Luke and the Apostle Paul, John wrote more of the New Testament than any other um, human author. He is um, called one. He is one of the sons of Zebedee, as you could see um, in the four different Gospels. Now, Zebedee's um, family was very prominent. Um, it may have stemmed from financial success um, or his family lineage, or both. His fishing business was large enough to have multiple hired servants. As we see, um, that he, um, he had many nets and hired servants when you read in the um, Gospels. And um, almost everything we observe about the personality and character of James is also true of John. Um, he's, him and his brother are nicknamed the Th- Sons of Th- Thunder. Um, John, the brother of James, and surname um, them Bonagers, which is the Sons of Thunder. And so both James and John are called as the Sons of Thunder. And you know, their personality, their character are very similar. They had similar temperaments. Um, they really, you see them in the Gospels, very inseparable. They were often found together. And so John was right there with um, James... Um, as we'll see later on, eager to call down fire from heaven against the Samaritans. Um, he was in the thick of the debates about who would be the greatest. Um, he, um, John, he, Peter, and James were part of Jesus' inner circle. Now you see that Jesus spent time with all his apostles. But there are several times where it's just Peter, James, and John. And so they were very close um, we involve in the ministry with Jesus. Um, they, they were um, All three of them were present when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. What a miracle to behold, to see someone who was dead and to be brought to life. Um, they, um, all three of these witnessed Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. That, that they saw Jesus' face transfigured and Moses and Elijah... Um, transfigured before them. Um, they're one of the four disciples who questioned Jesus privately on the Mount of Olives. And they were with Jesus in the garden just before um, His crucifixion. And we see some um, personnel, and one of them was, he was overly zealous to a fault. Now being zealous, in the good thing, it's good. You know, it, Take someone that's zealous and makes mistakes, I'll take them over someone that just doesn't do anything for the Lord. You know, it's better to be be in and doing something. You know, you see, even in the business world, you know, the ones that take too much caution usually never get anything done. But the ones that make risks, that make mistakes, are the ones that usually end up growing to be a successful um, business. Um, We do see with John that oftentimes he was overly zealous to a fault. He was extremely intolerant of others around him. He had a thirst for glory and prominence. That pride was a problem um, that he had. And he also had an unwillingness to suffer. Which I don't think any of us ever want to be like, oh God, I just want to suffer. I don't think anyone just wants to covet suffering, but you see early on that he would do what he would do to avoid suffering. You know, his thirst for glory is seen in his desire um, for the chief throne next to Jesus. And I'm just going to give a brief overview. We're going to get to these again later today. Um, We see his aversion to suffering is seen that he forsook Jesus when um, he was um, arrested, um, when he fled that night. And, you know, it can be a strong temptation for preachers to come blasting into a church, dump the truth on everyone, and expect an immediate response. Um, Preachers need to learn patience, a a degree of tolerance. Okay, not tolerance for falsehood, but a tolerance for understanding that, you know, people grow at different levels spiritually, that, you know, it's someone that just newly got saved. They're not going to have all the same convictions as someone that's been seasoned in the Word and have grown into relationship with the Lord. And so, you know, preachers need to learn patience, mercy, grace, forgiveness, tenderness, compassion, um, characteristics of love. Um, And these are things that we see in John's early life really lacked in. Um, It's wonderful to be bold and thunderous, but love is a necessity for balance. And we see through John's life, he learns that balance. And you know, when I first came here and was um, preaching what candidating, I actually did preach hard, um, my harder messages up front. I was like, if we're gonna move our family across here and just for confirmation of God's call, we're gonna preach heavier messages. And, um, and I think that was wise at that time and stuff. But if every message was always like that, you know, the sheep could really start feeling beat down. You know, a pastor needs to learn to have a shepherd's heart as well. And um, not just, just preaching, just to preach, but to show a balance. And we see that um, John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And you notice it's only written in John's writings where it's written this way. That now there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Um, John 22, again, that another disciple, whom Jesus loved. And then again, therefore that disciple, whom Jesus loved, say of a new Peter. Um, John twenty one twenty you know, at Peter turning about, see of the disciple whom Jesus loved. And Now again, only the Gospel of John mentions it this way, and secondly, John twenty-one verse two lets us know who was fishing with Peter at this time: Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Canaan Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. And the Apostle John was one of the sons of Zebedee, and we see that there were three disciples who were especially close to Jesus: Peter, James, and John. And so the disciple whom Jesus loved could not be Peter, is Peter is the one that asked the question concerning this disciple whom Jesus loved. And I used to kind of think, you know, when I was younger, babe in Christ, I would think, you know, that seems kind of prideful for John always to refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Doesn't he know that Jesus loves all the apostles? Yeah, he does. He knows that he wasn't doing this in a prideful sense, but this actually becoming a sense of humility. Instead of referring to himself by name, he's referring to himself in the third person. And then he's saying it in a sense that magnifies Christ, um, of whom Jesus loved. That he recognized himself as unworthy of the love, but Jesus loved him anyways. And so it became... Personal to him. You know, we see Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. And he basically told John, Care for my mother. And, um, he tells him, You know what? You know what? Look at look at Mary and behold thy mother. And so we see Peter's told to feed his sheep, and John's given the task to take care of his mother. Several witnesses in early church history record that John never left Jerusalem in the care of Mary until she died. That he took those words of heart when Jesus was on the cross and said, Behold thy mother, and that he took care of Mary. Um, it may seem amazing when we really look at the type of person that Jesus loved. That John was a man who wanted to burn up the Samaritans. Um, He loved a man obsessed with status and position. He loved a man who forsook him and fled rather than suffer for his sake. But in loving John, we see that Jesus ends up transforming him to um, be a man who would would be modeled the same kind of love Jesus had shown him. John had filled a unique and patriarchal role in the early church, lasted nearly to the end of the first century, reached deep into Asia Minor. His personal influence was therefore stamped on the primitive church while well into the post-apostolic era. Um, you hear some other early Christians um, writing um, or referring to other Christians. Um, it goes now, The testimony is born to these things in writing by Papias, an ancient man, who was a hearer of John and a friend of Polycarp in the fourth of his books, for five books were composed by him. So he's writing about Papias, but he t- mentions that Papias was, and Polycarp were a friend of the apostle John. These are people we never hear of mentioned in the Bible itself, but from other Christian writings um, early on. Um, Jerome writes of Polycarp, a disciple of the apostle John, and by him ordained bishop of Smyrna, was chief of all Asia, where he saw and had his teachers, some of the apostles and of those who had seen the Lord. And so here we see the man Polycarp again was a disciple of John. And Polycarp ended up doing great things for the Lord um, following John's um, death. You know, ultimately, John could maybe be seen as very influential because he was the last of the apostles um, to die. You know, he led back to the faith many of the believers who had been deceived through um, cult leaders, Markian and Valentinus. Both of these men would cut out portions of the scripture and um, take some entire books out of the Bible, and they would develop their own canon of Scripture to go by, and and, and they would t- change it. And, and so John ran into them at one time, and um, Mar- Markian met him by chance and said, Do you know us? Do you know who we are? He's asking John that. And John says, Yes, I know the firstborn of the devil. And so we see, he still was that son of thunder. That he still was bold. That he would correct falsehood. And bring about the truth. We see that John ends up in Revelation being banned to the island of um, Patmos. As you can see over there where the letter um, A is there. So, banned to this island and put in prison And then Jesus gives the revelation um, to him. And um, here's a um, picture of a prison on that island that he very possibly could have been staying in this very um, prison um, hole. But we see that through John that he learns the balance of love and truth. And first we see he has to struggle with this issue of love. John at first displays, again, an imp- appalling intolerance, um, elitism, feeling like, you know what, he's better than everyone else, and really had a lack of genuine love for others. You know, in Luke nine fifty four, it says, And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Even as Elias did. So you know what you know what their attitude was? Hey, we know you had a prophet do this before. Well, let's do this? Well, let's just burn them with fire? You know you have some preachers today. You know that's where that's all their attitude, all their mentality is. Is yeah, let's just let's just show them how it is. Let's rip their face off. And that's like all their ministry is really about doing. And that's what James and John's heart was like. Well, just tear them up. Let's burn those Samaritans up with fire. But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. Yes, God had Elijah um, do that. There was a purpose. There was a cause for that to be done. But here he's dealing with the spirit, the attitude that John and James were having. And in this part... You go, Jesus goes on, For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That part's missing from your New Modern Bible versions. I think that's a pretty good, important aspect of this rebuke He's giving them. That He's saying that, you know what? I did not come to destroy lives, but to save them. And then they went to another village. You see John speaking by himself in Mark. John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me, for he that is not against us is on our part. And so now here John sees, he sees these other people. Casting out devils. They're ministering in the name of Jesus. But they're like, they're not following us. They're not just like us. You know, Jesus didn't say, you know what, just go join them. He didn't say that. But he said, you know what, forbid them not. You know what, they're not against us. And you know, that's where it's important to learn that. It's a balance. It's a church as well. And you know what, there's some... Okay, there's some church out there, you know what, we're going to expose the doctrine because it really compromises the gospel. They teach a workspace salvation, that needs to be corrected. We're not going to yoke up, we're not going to fellowship, um, it's, a, it's a ecclesiastically, it's a church. But yet there are sometimes churches, out there, there are, there's churches, um, for the most part, they teach, they preach the Bible, they preach who Jesus was, the deity of Christ. They um, um, preach salvation by grace through faith. And there's some things that, you know what, we would still disagree on that are pretty big doctrinal areas. They don't deal with the gospel. I mean, like, they don't corrupt the gospel, but they're off in other doctrinal areas. And so we maybe aren't doing a church function together, but I'm also not going to be wasting my time blasting them. You know, like, just speaking evil of them. You know what? Praise God for the good that's being done. You know, Paul even um, was thankful when someone would preach the name of Christ. Um, he'd preach the gospel with impure motives. He was like, glory to God, the gospel is preached. And so there's a the balance that You know, there's sometimes things where, you know, I may not be buddy-buddy up with all the time. It doesn't mean we yoke up, but it also doesn't mean, you know, we speak evil of one another or try to forbid them. And Jesus What's John know? That you know what? They maybe aren't following us. They may not be exactly like us, but they're still preaching Jesus. And so, you know, we see a rare glimpse of John without James and without Peter speaking for himself. This was pure John in that saying that they're following us not. In Mark 10, verse 35. Um, This is a passage, pretty fine print, we won't read all this, but basically James and John um, have this request of Jesus. And um, he says, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto him, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. He yeah. you know, so Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with, well, shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became to be much displeased with James and John. And so here, they're wanting that glory. They're wanting that prominence. They're wanting to be the big cheese. And Jesus has basically asked, asked them, You know what? Are you going to be willing to suffer? Are you going to be willing to suffer for my name? And they're like, oh yeah, we could do that. You no, know, that's not what they were looking for. And they did end up learning through suffering. and stuff. But So you know what, we see that they had it backward. They wanted to be first in the kingdom, but they needed to learn to be servants if they wanted to truly be great. They needed to be more childlike. Instead of arguing and fighting with each other, instead of putting each other down and saying, I'm going to be the greatest, I'm going to be the best in the kingdom, they needed a more... They needed to embrace one another, have a unity instead of rejecting each other and insulting themselves. And yet we end up seeing that he ended up writing more than any other New Testament offer about the importance of love. Laying particular stress on us. We see at first, this is what he struggled with in his daily life. And yet you read John, 1 John, 2 John, Third John, Revelation, you see the love of God, the love of people written throughout it. You see there's a particular stress on Christ's love for His church. Um, you know, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And man is taking in the love of God. Um, Christians love for one another. First um, John three sixteen. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down this life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Love for one another is supposed to be the hallmark of true believers. You know, He wrote, "We love Him because He first loved us." If, any, if a man say, "I love God and hate of His brother," he is a liar. For he that love of not his brother whom he have seen. How can he love God whom he have not seen? And so we see it flows throughout his writings um, about love. But love was the quality he had to learn from Christ. It was not a natural trait that he had. And that's where sometimes we need to recognize our own personality flaws. We go, Lord, you know what? Yes, we have our personality, but Lord... What my force to be more turned to be used for your glory? Transform it. And so we see with truth. Like Andrew, John without hesitation began following Jesus as soon as John the Baptist signaled Jesus out as the true Messiah. And so we see John early on, he was interested in the truth. You know, he hadn't followed John the Baptist just to follow some type of personality cult leader. He was after the truth. And once John the Baptist declared Jesus to be that Lamb of God, he would take away the sin of the world, John started following after Jesus. And you'll see that John's love of truth is evident in all his writings. Um, and I use this the root word for truth 25 times in this gospel and 20 more times in this epistles. And um, he wrote, I have no greater joy than you hear that my children walk in truth. And you know, his strongest statement for someone who claimed to be a believer while walking in darkness was to describe the person as a liar and the truth is not in him. And so we see John was for the truth, even before he had the temperance of love. Love did not nullify the Apostle John's passion for truth, rather it gave him the balance he needed. He retained it to the end of his life, a deep and abiding love for Almighty God, proclaiming it. Um, In his Gospel, he sets light against darkness. Um, Life against death, the kingdom of God against the kingdom of the devil, the children of God against the children of Satan, the judgment of the righteous, the judgment of the wicked, the resurrection of life against the resurrection of damnation, receiving Christ, rejecting Christ, fruit against fruitlessness, obedience against disobedience, love against hatred. We see with John, truth was absolute. It was, it was black and white for him. Of all the writers of the New Testament, he is the most that seems to come across this way. There were no gray areas. It wasn't like, oh, we don't, we don't really know this. No, for him, it was absolute one way or another that he would deal with certainties. Everything is cut and dry with him. And um, he understands the necessity of drawing a line, so to speak. And so he deals with absolutes and opposites over and over. John writes that believers do not sin. And so at first, you know, we look at that and we're like, what? What do you mean? Now, we know that John isn't completely saying that believers don't sin because he also wrote in the same letter um, that he understands that believers do sin. That, that he ends up saying, if any man say he sin of not, that he's a liar. The truth's not in him. We deceive ourselves if we say we don't sin. But then later he talks about those that have the seed of the word in it, that they sin not. And so what he's trying to deal with in more absolute terms. He doesn't belabor or develop the point. Um, he, but he is primary concerned with the overall pattern of one's life. He wants to underscore the fact that righteousness, not sin, is going to be the dominant principle of a Christian's life. Not that they don't sin, but that when you look at the Christian's life, it's not going to be like they, the average person just thinks, wow, they're just sinning all the time. And so John deals more with the absolutes. And so, those who read John carelessly or superficially might almost think he is saying there are no exceptions. You know, I've had people um, that would um, teach from this verse from um, the Bible Missionary Church that that we could get to the point where we don't sin anymore, and 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 that's a false teaching. But they use that one sentence in John there. But you know what? John again is still in with. Okay, saying of point of fact, you know what? A Christian, they're going to live a life that's honoring new Lord. The non-Christian is going to live a life not honoring new Lord. We see Paul, on the other hand, it's more you see him mention the exceptions. Paul took time to explain the struggle all believers experience with sin in their lives. In Romans 7, Paul also states that those who are born of God... Do not continue in habitual sin, though, in Romans 6, verse 6 to 7. And yet he acknowledges that there's still a war within us, the old man against the new man, that that it is a struggle. And now both Paul's writings and John's writings are inspired scripture. But we see their personalities come out in it. That Paul shows, he recognizes, you know what, as Christians, we're still going to have that battle, there's going to be that struggle with sin. John, more comes from the perspective of, you know what? Christians are going to live like Christians. In his second epistle, John calls for complete, total separation from all that is false. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that bid of him Godspeed speed is partaker of his evil deeds. And so here he's saying, you know, when you got those false messengers, when you have those cults come into your house and give you their message, receive them not into your house. You know he's writing to a lady that you know she had a heart to log strangers, and that she would log Christian teachers as they would travel, and she would take care of their needs. John warns her, "Don't take care of these false prophets. Don't give them God's speed. That there there is needs to be a separation." When a Jehovah Witness comes to your door and they leave, you don't say, God bless you. You don't want them to be blessed in their endeavors to a false doctrine. Now, that doesn't mean you don't give them the gospel. You know what? You go to them and you give them the gospel, but don't receive them into your house. And so we see John stands for truth. Now, this does not mean you don't let a lost person in your house. You know, we see Jesus often ministered to sinners. And we knew to the point where he was accused of being a drunkard just because he was with people that did drink. And that, um, they, they were saying, this man hangs out with sinners. Yes, that's who he came to seek and to save. That which was lost. And so we're to minister to them. But when someone is preaching a false gospel, you give them the gospel, but you don't receive them into fellowship. John wrote, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. Then he he, he spends the first half of the epistle urging them to walk in love as well. He reminds them of the new commandment, which of course is not really new, but simply restates the commandment we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And so we see that he doesn't just tell them, Walk in truth, but he teaches them to walk in love. And so John balances that emphasis on love in the second half of the epistle by urging the woman not to compromise her love by receiving and blessing false teachers who undermine the truth. John was committed to truth, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that, but it wasn't enough. And that's where, again, oftentimes people, I've been that way in my, in my life at times, um, where we get imbalanced in our early years, only in the other direction. You know, we could go two different streams. Some could get so focused on, okay, this is the truth, we're just going to pour it on people. And then the others are, we're all about love and we're all about unity at the expense of truth. Both of them on their own end up being imbalanced and really becomes unbecoming of a Christian. You know, when people see us, um, you know what, yeah, you know what, we may have our um, um, doctrine right, you know what, there was um, one preacher I heard um, say before, says, you know what, I don't know anybody that was ever interested in a large bride, but in a pure bride. And his mocking was to say, you know what, yes, my church is small, but it's because we we're pure. We're small, but we're pure. You know, that's the wrong concept to have um, for a preacher to have. I guess you know, we may be small. You know what? You know what? Christ will build his church. But you don't criticize the bigger church and say, oh, you know what? That church is bigger just because they're impure. Now we see the early church in Acts. They had explosive growth. And so we need to have the proper balance of truth and love. Um, some are merely ignorant. Others are deceived. Still so others simply don't care about what is true. In each case, truth is missing. If you're all about truth and no love, truth is actually missing. And if you're all about love and unity and not truth, truth is missing. You know, they are all left with is air, clove in a shallow, tolerant unity. It is a poor substitute for genuine love. Um, people talk a lot about love and tolerance, but they utterly lack any concern for the truth. Um, you know, truth without love, basically. Um, I saw it written like this: Truth without love has no decency. It's just brutality. On the other hand, love without truth has no character. It's just hypocrisy. zeal for the truth must be balanced by the love of God flowing through us in loving people. You know, as a church, we're going to stand strong for Bible doctrine. But we're going to strive to love people. We're going to try to love them where they're at. Not to say what they're doing. Say if someone's in sin, okay? Okay, Say someone's, you know, it's, it's involved in adultery. No, we're not going to condone that. We're not going to say that's okay. But we're going to give them the gospel. We're going to love people. We're going to uh, um, try to have that balance Take John in up learning. You know, because real love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. You know, sometimes Christians make the mistake of like, you know, what someone will just mention something that's terrible, it's bad. And then we'll, Christian will say, oh, that's good. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad for you. Like, oh, you know what? Yeah, you need to get away from that guy or whatever. You know, and don't like, turn to something that's wrong, And they're trying to make it positive because we don't want it to get awkward. We don't want there to be an awkward um, silence. And you know what? I used to allow it to be awkward silence. You know what? Someone wants to boast in their sin. I'm not going to be like, oh, you know what? Oh, you know what? I guess it's not that bad. Oh, you know what? Let them them feel the conviction from God and not hear any kind of approval from me because real love does not rejoice in iniquity. You know what? Uh, A Christian doesn't say to their friend that just turned homosexual and goes, oh, I just care that you're happy. No, that's that's rejoicing in an iniquity. You know, it's more of like you want to tell them, no, you know what, this is wrong, this is against God, this isn't how God designed you. You're not born this way. Yes, you're born a sinner, as we all were born sinners, and we must turn from that. And then, you know what, turn to Jesus Christ. And that Jesus could give us the victory over whatever our sin may be. Real love does not rejoice in iniquity. John used the word truth some 45 times in his gospel and his epistles or some variation of it. But it's interesting that love is used over 80 times. And so we see that he learned to love others as the Lord had loved him. Love became the anchor, the centerpiece of the truth um, he was most concerned with. And um, John's theology is best described, is a theology of love. He taught that God is the God of love. That God loved His own Son. That God loved the world. That God is loved by Christ. That Christ love His disciples. That Christ's disciples love Him. That all men should love Christ. That we should love one another. And that love fulfills the law. Love was the critical part of every element of John's teaching. It was the dominant theme of his theology. And John's love never caused him to depart from standing for truth. So he did not say, oh, let's just all have unity. That, oh, yes, we worship the same God as Muslims, and that Hindus worship the same God just in various forms. No, they're false gods, they're idols. Love does not rejoice in falsehood. And we see to the very end of the life of John, he was a thunderous defender of the truth. He lost none of his intolerance for lies. And his epistles written near the end of his life. He was still thundering out against Christologies that were false. The Gnostics that you know, would say that Jesus just swoon on the cross or that he just appeared as the spirit; that he didn't become flesh. John preached against those. He preached against those teaching false teachings, against anti-Christian deceptions. You see him writing of the ant- the spirit of Antichrist already in the world, um, against sin and against immorality. There are many who have all their theological ducks in a row. On the other hand, and know their doctrine. But are unloving and self-exalting. And that's what John struggled with early on in his life. That they're cold with facts, stiff, stifling, unattractive, and their lack of love cripples the power the truth could have in reaching people. In Ephesians 4:13, go ahead and turn there. Ephesians 4:13. Um, we see the Apostle Paul describes this balance of truth and love as spiritual maturity. You know, I actually did put this um, scripture on here. But go ahead and open in your Bible. Um, Ephesians 4, 13, 15. You know, sometimes people um, think spiritual maturity is just someone that, man, they're tough, they're hard. Well, the Bible describes spiritual maturity differently. Says how we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. So we see this call of love, of unity in the body of Christ. But he also says that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness. Whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth and love may grow up into him in all things which is ahead, even Christ. So a spiritual maturity, they're gonna have a balance, they're gonna have truth, and they're gonna have unity around that truth. That is what it means to share in Christ's likeness. That he is the perfect expression of truth and the perfect expression of love. That Jesus is to be our model. It's wonderful to have a high regard for truth. But zeal for the truth must be balanced by love. Or we're really going to hinder our ministry in reaching um, people. And we're going to show give way to judgmentalism, harshness, and the lack of compassion. Now again, truth is never abandoned in the name of love. Love is not to be disposed of. In the name of truth. That is what John learned from Christ. And it gave him the balance he so desperately needed. In a sense, John was a son of thunder to the end. The Lord knew that the most powerful advocate for love needed to be a man who never compromised the truth. We're only halfway done. So we're going to go ahead and stop right here. Next week we will kind of be a little bit kind of kind of be like a review. We're going to be going back in detail of the different situations that John went through and how he learned to have that balance of love and truth.